Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Abide in Liberty. On the agenda for today, as there's a resurgence of interest in constitutionality and a desire to learn about the Constitution and return to constitutional principles and the rule of law, it's helpful to take a look at history to see what it teaches us. There's nothing new under the sun, and history does indeed repeat itself. So we need look no further than the American and French revolutions as a cautionary tale for how we should proceed in our modern-day revival of constitutional and liberty fervor. All right, let's jump right in. President Ezra Taft Benson, who was president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints years ago, was also uh, Secretary of Agriculture under President Dwight D. Eisenhower. And so he got to see the workings of government. He understood the rule of law and the importance of constitutional protection in a way that not many people who haven't worked within that environment can understand. In 1986, at a speech in BYU, he gave a talk about the importance of understanding and defending the U.S. Constitution. And he said, at this bicentennial celebration, we must, with sadness, say that we have not been wise in keeping the trust of our founding fathers. For the past two centuries, those who do not prize freedom have chipped away at every major clause of our Constitution until today we face a crisis of great dimensions. We are fast approaching that moment prophesied by Joseph Smith when he said, Even this nation will be on the very verge of crumbling to pieces and tumbling to the ground. And when the Constitution is upon the brink of ruin, this people will be the staff upon which the nation shall lean, and they shall bear the Constitution away from the very verge of destruction. So is 30 plus years ago now, and things have not gotten better as far as freedom and liberty is concerned since then. Elder Bednar, just a few months after the COVID pandemic hit full swing, he participated in a virtual forum with religious leaders from around the world and from different denominations about religious freedom. And he talked about some of the measures that had been taken in the interest of health protection, but how it had undermined certain freedoms. In particular, at one point he said, while believers and their religious organizations must be good citizens in time of crisis, never again can we allow government officials to treat the exercise of religion as simply non-essential. Never again must the fundamental right to worship God be trivialized below the ability to buy gasoline. And I would even say there were states where you could go to the liquor store, but you could not go to church. So we sure, we certainly shouldn't trivialize religious worship below the ability to get gasoline, but even more so, it shouldn't be trivialized below the ability to buy liquor and get yourself drunk. Freedoms have certainly been under attack for many, many years, but it does seem that those attacks have intensified in recent years. Attacks on the Second Amendment have been ongoing for a very long time. Religious freedom, there has been a slow erosion of those, and we've talked about those in prior podcasts. But I do feel like those attacks have accelerated, and in particular, 
freedom of speech has come under attack in a way that I don't ever remember seeing, at least in my lifetime before. And it's in, on incredibly shaky ground. We're at this point where there are large tech companies that are censoring unpopular types of speech. And there's this debate. These are private companies. Can we really regulate those? Are they really the arbiters of free speech? But they do have such a large presence that they are, in effect, in many ways, stifling free speech. So how do we handle that? How do we handle that with a private company while still maintaining the importance and the protection of the First Amendment? Is that okay or is it not? That's kind of the question of our time. We absolutely do need to return to our constitutional roots. We need to return to the rule of law where justice is blind and everybody is treated equally under the law. But a focus on those two things solely is not enough. And history gives us a very poignant example of why that is. We need something more than just a fervor and an interest and a passion for liberty and for freedom. God loves case studies. They're all over the place. And in particular, he gave us one at the dawn of our country. So I want to start with a brief summary of the American Revolution, and then I'll give a brief summary of the French Revolution, and let's see if you can spot the main difference between these two. And the early colonies were established in order to escape religious persecution. And if you read the charters from Great Britain of all these settlements throughout the early 1600s and the 1700s, they all included a missionary aspect, the uh, a charge to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the native inhabitants of the American continent. The first colony was established at Jamestown in the year 1607. And religion and self-governance formed the backbone of these early settlements. They were there primarily to escape religious persecution, but they were also far enough away from the central government in England that they couldn't sit around and wait for magisterial or kingly directives to guide their day-to-day affairs. They were, by necessity, given a huge amount of autonomy in electing their own leaders and managing their own affairs. So, They, as they're trying to practice their religion, their Christian religion, to the best of their ability, they're also given this incredible opportunity to make their own decisions and to make their own people. Under the rights guaranteed British citizens in the Magna Carta, British citizens actually did enjoy an incredible amount of freedom. It was unprecedented up to that point. They were were on the cutting edge in many ways. And so under these circumstances, the population of the early colonies grew to about 2 million people by the 1770s, which is the dawn of the American Revolution. By this time, the American dream was thriving. It was alive and well. This was a place where you could come, you could work hard, you could make something of yourself. If you came from nothing, it didn't matter. If you were willing to put in the work and homestead and scratch your own existence out of the middle of the wilderness, you could flourish and become wealthy and educated and all these incredible things. But after the French and Indian War concluded, Great Britain needed a way to pay off that wartime debt somehow. This is when they started levying a lot of these taxes and burdens on the colonies. And this is where we get taxation without representation, right? And and representation in areas of taxation was actually something that the British government guaranteed its citizens. So the British government was going against its own rules and treating these full British citizens in the colonies as if they were second-rate citizens. And that enraged these early colonists, especially after 150 plus years of 
freedom and and autonomy and the ability to chart their own course. This just irked them to no end. For years, they sent peaceful petitions and tried to resolve their differences with Great Britain through peaceful means. But ultimately, they made the decision that it was time to declare their independence from Great Britain, which they did. And this was a peaceful act. However, Great Britain was not willing to let them go. So they sent soldiers across the ocean to compel the colonies to return to their senses and come back to their mother country. America decided to fight for and maintain their newly declared independence. And this is where the Revolutionary War comes in. Ultimately, the colonists, after many years of struggle and hardship, win the Revolutionary War, but the troubles for them didn't end there. With the inability to pay their soldiers because the Articles of Confederation were so weak that Congress couldn't compel the states to pay their fair share of taxes, so you had soldiers that had sacrificed years of their lives that were not able to be paid, unemployment was rampant, states were printing, and the federal government were printing money like nobody's business. So inflation was going through the roof and there was really nothing to stop the chaos. The the country was falling apart just after it had won its independence. So in an incredible act of bravery, the delegates came together from each of the states, kind of shrugged off the mandate that they had been given to just revise the Articles of Confederation and put together the Constitution as the means to rescue the United States from the brink of disaster. All these problems that were in the Articles of Confederation, they fixed in the Constitution. And this was significant because as the founders looked at what they they were doing, they knew that they were doing something unique. Normally, when a country is descending into chaos, there's normally a strong leader or somebody like that that will come in and promise to, to... to restore order and to be the voice of reason and bring everyone back together and solve all these problems. And that's where countries go through the cycle of dictator to democracy to anarchy. And then in order to to stave off the pain that that anarchy causes, they bring in another dictator. Well, they broke that cycle by coming together as representatives of the people and then taking this form of government out to the states and allowing the states to decide if they wanted to adopt it. And ultimately, the states did. The Constitution was ratified, and an era of unprecedented peace, prosperity, and advancement began, and it has led to the modern world that we see today. And not only has America benefited from that, but the rest of the world has as well. The United States of America had the very first written Constitution that we know of in the history of the world. And now, today, there are 193 written constitutions in use. This paved the way for everything and all the great things that we have seen since then. Now, during all of this time, during during the American Revolution, France actually was a major ally for the United States. France provided funding to the United States during its fight against Great Britain, but they also, about halfway through the war, roughly, sent over a bunch of soldiers, ships to assist the American colony. So we could not have won our independence without the aid of the French. Now, as the French commoners are watching all of this happen, they're paying attention to this movement of freedom in the United States. Now, presumably, 
the nobles who are sending all this money over and all these soldiers over to aid the Americans were likely doing this for the intent of kind of poking Great Britain in the eye. Anything that weakened Great Britain was a benefit to France. However, as I mentioned, the common people were watching all this and began to have a spark of hope that perhaps since our government and our leaders are assisting in this freedom movement, that we'll get to partake of some of those benefits as well. And they began to have a taste and a thirst for the type of freedom that their countrymen had just helped the United States of America to gain. Now, at the time, there were three main classes in France. There was the clergy, the nobility, and the common people made up about 95% of the population of France, and the clergy and the nobility ran the country. Uh, The common people were heavily taxed, both by the king as well as by the nobles on whose land they lived. And these common people didn't own the land that they lived on. They rented it from the local noble. Not only that, but the they were taxed heavily for the crops that they grew. A large percentage of that went to the nobles, and it could change at any time on the, at the whim of the nobles. If the commoners wanted to take some of the grain that they had grown on this rented land and grind it into wheat, they had to go to the nobles' mill, and the noble would charge them for the use of that mill so that they could get, get the food that they needed. And what's significant is the nobility and the clergy paid no taxes whatsoever. So the entire cost of running this country was laid at the feet of the common people who really didn't have the means to support it. And this was the pattern during this entire time period from the 1600s to the 1700s where the early American colonists are experimenting with freedom and they're building their faith and they're they're learning how to govern themselves. The French were being oppressed. They had no opportunity to speak and act for themselves. They just had to go along with what the nobles told them and they were kept very much at heel. And then to make matters worse, to add insult to injury in the 1780s, so about the time when America is realizing we need to get our act together and form a better form of government so that we don't fall off the face of the earth before we've been really able to give this experiment of freedom uh, its fair try. During that same time, over in France, they were experiencing just a terrible, terrible drought. So on top of everything else that's going on, the French are now starving Um, And they weren't doing very well before that because of how heavily they were taxed and oppressed by the nobility. And now it it really pushed them to the breaking point and made them incredibly desperate. At the same time, we have a weak King Louis who married Marie Antoinette. And in Paris in particular, as the common people are starving and just ground into the dust, they're watching the extravagant parties and the extravagant clothing and all of the opulence that defined and characterized what it meant to be noble at that time. And this disparity just started simmering into into a rage that would bubble over soon. And eventually, it did spill over um, when the common people stormed the Bastille, this dreaded political prison that the king and the nobility managed. They freed the prisoners, and when they saw the state that these prisoners were in and how badly they had been treated, it just, they became incensed. And so everyone that they found, all the guards that they found that had anything to do with the Bastille, on that day when they when they took it over, 
they decapitated them, placed their heads on spikes, and paraded them along with these prisoners through the streets of, of Paris. And it wasn't long before the common people rose up, decided to form their own government that was going to be a free government and a democratic government. And as, as news of this started reaching the Americans, people like Thomas Jefferson were just ecstatic that this, this idea of freedom was spreading. It started in America and now the French are taking it on. But there were others who were much more cautious because they saw that the French didn't have something that the American Revolution did have. So people like George Washington and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton saw some problems on the horizon. And that's exactly what happened. Eventually, this anger festered to the point that the common people began first running the nobility out of the country and then turning to the guillotine to behead and execute every noble that they could find. And when they ran out of nobles, they started looking for anyone that might have had nobility in their bloodline in the past or servants who had worked and uh, played and grown up alongside nobility. And any association with nobility in the past became enough reason to, um, to be separated from your head. And it became just this horror show of decapitations and bloodlust that turned France into just a, a terrible, terrible place to be. At the same time as the nobility is driven out, they also drive out the clergy because the clergy was a part of the problem. They were a part of this ruling class. So the church, the Catholic church had to go. So nobility's kicked out, religion and faith are kicked out, and we have this horrible deal. And at the same time, the nobility who had been driven out is, are getting other countries to come in and attack France. So they're fighting a war. And eventually, at the end of all this chaos, they rely on this great general to solve their problems and to fight off the enemies of France. And this was Napoleon Bonaparte. So at the end of the cycle, they end up with what became Emperor Napoleon. And through, we're not going to go into the rest of this because eventually they do end up with a republic many years down the road. But what is the main difference that you see between what we had here in America and what the French experienced? Why were there such different outcomes? As I've talked about many times before on this podcast, the grounding element of the founding of our country was its Christian faith. God was alive and present. He was relied on throughout the Revolutionary War. The founders turned to him during the Constitutional Convention. God was a part of this country's revolution and of its founding. On the flip side, over in France, they saw God as part of the problem because God was equated with the church. And because the church there had been a part of this system that oppressed them, it had to go. And it did. And so they kicked any semblance of moral authority out of their country. And when you don't have that grounding moral authority, when that moral compass goes away, then anything goes. Anything goes. God was not a part of it, and the result was an absolute horror show. You don't get stories from the French Revolution like you get from the American Revolution. There were people here in America who wanted to go drag British sympathizers out into the street and hang them, tar them, and feather them. But you get these stories of people like Alexander Hamilton, who stands up in front of a mob 
and talks them out of their bloodlust because this is not the way to do it. He called on Christian principles and their their faith to prick their consciences and keep them from doing these terrible things. And it wasn't perfect, but it was it was a far cry better than the godless revolution of the French Revolution. In France, freedom was the only morality, freedom at all costs. There were no moral checks. And it became the very type of oppression that it was trying to escape. So the whole point of why I bring this up is, yes, we have absolutely got to get back to constitutional principles. We have got to re-enthrone the rule of law. We've got to put the blindfold back on justice and make sure that everybody gets equal treatment under the law. All of these things have to happen. We've got to reclaim the religious freedoms, the freedom of speech, and all the other freedoms that uh, President Benson was talking about have been eroded and taken away from us. We've got to get them back. But if in our fervor to regain those freedoms, we neglect to include God as a central figure in that movement, then history shows it's not a pretty picture. God has got to be a part of it. If we don't live in a way that we can hear God and follow his way through the challenges that we face, we lose this country We run the risk of losing our families, and we run the risk of losing our soul individually and collectively. Let's make sure that in our efforts to return to the incredible formula of freedom that God himself authored and inspired, that we don't make the mistake of thinking ourselves above his help and his aid now, because we're not. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.